Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, imagine if you were born on a desert island and all you ever had to eat was coconuts. Would you enjoy the taste of chocolate? You might even find it disgusting when first presented to you. Would you have good manners if you were the only person there? Or understand when somebody gives you a gift, the politeness of letting them know that you received that gift and and giving them a thank you. There's a lot you would be very unknowing about. Now, the law, one of the purposes is to show us our sin. And today we even have Christians who claim that because Christ had died for our sins and rose victorious, that God doesn't even care about sin. Hell doesn't even exist. Our gospel story in which Jesus cleanses his temple the same week, the end of that week, he's going to end up on the cross, shows us that even though Jesus died for our sins, he's still holy and he still wants us to be holy. And and while we can use the law as a thank you when we do that, our text for our sermon is the initial giving of the law to Israel, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. To remind you of that account, I will read the first three verses. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt where you were slaves. You shall have no other gods beside me. This is the word of our Lord. Who is God talking to here? If you were not one of the people or the nation of Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, he's not talking to you here. And one of the things we have to remember is God gave us his law twice. He wrote it on our conscience And he gave it to the nation of Israel as a nation of Israel. And some of the external trappings of that applied to the nation of Israel. And those things have been fulfilled. But the basic principles still stand for us. But there's something great being said here. Even though you and I may not have Jewish blood, I'm the Lord your God. He he caused the event of bringing you out of Egypt, specifically out of the house of slavery. The Israelites had entered under Joseph into Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man, basically, after Joseph came in as a slave. But they had been re-enslaved. They had no will of their own. They had to do what the Egyptians demanded or face the consequences, and they turned to God for deliverance. Do you ever think about the slavery God has freed you from? You were a slave to sin, death, and the devil. Your sinful nature, the strings are being pulled by the puppet master, the devil. He only does his will. And if we didn't have God's law, we wouldn't even know that we were slaves. We wouldn't even know about the freedom we should have. And and so think about that. Unbelievers look at God's law through the eyes of slavery, not knowing it better. That's boring stuff, they say. That's not right. But when you hear that the cross of Christ is the sledgehammer through which he busted your shackles, when you hear that God put his Holy Spirit in your heart, the law now shows you what your slavery was and what the rest of the world, when they hear it, think, oh, that, that doesn't sound right. You know, I've got to obey those laws. That's holiness. Who wants anything to do with that? Now for you with that new man in your heart, This becomes how you thank God, how you see that true slavery is the devil leading you to act against these general precepts. And the very first precept, there must not be other gods for you. And the Hebrew literally says specifically over my presence. 
Now, a lot of liberal Christians will turn around today and say, well, they had a pantheon of gods in the nation they were going to be taken over. And God says, let me be on top. But no, he begins by saying there must be no other gods for you, period. And then he gives an explanation specifically over my presence. Now, God is present everywhere, brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't hide from God. So if he's present everywhere, that means there cannot be any other gods, period. Oh, but how do we make our own gods? Don't we want God to be like a genie in a bottle that we can pull out of our pocket and, you know, now I need God and you rub it with, and the rubbing of the bottle would be prayer and then you say, God, this is what I need now, fix it. But then we would be God's master. We make ourselves God. In fact, we can look to things like money and think, you know, well, if I had enough money, it would solve all my problems and not recognizing that God is at work behind us, behind even our proper use of money, and so we want to be content with everything he's provided. The biggest false god we tend to make is me, myself, and I. We want other people to kowtow to our will and God to be that genie in the bottle that will follow through. That is slavery. That is slavery to our own selfishness and we don't even realize that the devil is the puppet master pulling the strings of our sinful nature when we think that way. In the next verse, God says... You must not make for yourself an idol and all the images which come from the heavens above and which come from the earth below and which come from the waters below in respect to the earth. You must not bow yourself down to them. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the nation of Israel, and that meant nothing, no, not even a representation of God. God had revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. Well, they couldn't have paintings of the burning bush. God had led them out of Egypt into the promised land in that great cloud. Now they couldn't have a representation of a great cloud. Nothing, period. Now, in ancient times, people tended to view God like a, the gods like a cell phone. They thought, if I carve this, it's like a cell phone, and that gives me the conduit, the phone line, so I can get a hold of that God. And usually they viewed gods this way. You had a national god. And in Canaan, that was usually Baal. Then you had a city god. So like for the Philistines, that was Dagon. And then you had your personal plethora of household gods, and you would turn to them to you know, help your kid get over the cold and things like this. So God is saying, I don't even want representations. Now, we've already covered, we tend to have false gods, money and ourself and things like this, and God didn't even want representations of them. Now, we're very thankful that Jesus took on human flesh, true God and true man, and he never let anything be God but the true God, the triune God. Period. End of discussion. Never once was Jesus even selfish. Jesus always put things in the right perspective and has freed you from that. But we're no longer the nation of Israel. We are allowed to have paintings of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was not an Anglo-Saxon guy with long, pretty blonde hair. He was a Jew. And, and so even our paintings usually aren't very accurate. But we're allowed to have those. We're allowed to have pictures of Jesus on the cross, carvings of Jesus in our churches and in our homes. But when we turn and start praying to those as if they're a conduit or as if they are Jesus himself, then we're breaking the first commandment. So think about the freedom God has given you, even that the nation of Israel didn't have. He wanted them to wait until he took on human flesh to have his representation. Till then, they were to be nothing like that at all so that the pagan world around them would see, what the, would see something standing out unique about the true and only God. And then he says in verse 5, you must not bow yourself down to them. You must not allow yourself to be brought to serve them. 
says that in a very literal translation of the Hebrew. How could you allow yourself to be brought to serve them? Well, like in the early Christian church, the Romans said, deny your God, offer a pinch of incense and a prayer to Caesar, and we won't kill you. We won't light you up as a human torch to light up Circus Maximus. See, you could allow yourself to be brought that way. Or, or the Israelites in the time of drought and stuff, they'd say, well, I'm still going to believe in the true God, but I'm just going to pray to Baal just in case. No. There's only one thing to be God. And he explains that because I am the Lord, your God. I am a jealous God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the name he uses for Lord means he absolutely exists in and of himself. He's never, does he need anything from a human being? And yet he's absolutely faithful to his promises. Now think about that. He made a promise to you when you were baptized to keep you into the day of salvation. And he's going to keep that promise. You're the only one who can break that. And God, it's the plural, focusing to the Trinity, showing that he's all-powerful and almighty, but he says, I'm jealous. He talks to us human beings because we're kind of dumb compared to God. He knows everything. He talks to us in ways that we can understand. And he doesn't mean jealous like like a a jealous spouse who's, you know, you better put on blinders, you better not be looking at anybody. I don't like the way that person talked to you. No, what he means by jealous is he created all things. He created all things for you. And he's not going to let his glory go to some false God that doesn't even exist. So he makes it very, very clear, and he justifiably has us. He's the one who made you. He's the one who provides for you. He's not going to share his glory with anyone or anything else. Then he adds those words that a lot of unbelievers have a problem with, if he says about himself, who exercises oversight on the crooked ways of the fathers and over the sons and over the sons of the third and fourth generation for those who keep on hating me. People say, Well, that's unfair. God punishes you for the sins of your dad. No, that's not what he says. The Hebrew word used for sin is a word for twisting, making crooked. So you take God's will and you just twist it a little bit. So dear old dad, pick whatever sin he wants. He takes God's will and just twists it to excuse his sin. Then he passes that on to his son who just takes that and twists it a little bit more. Who passes it on to his next generation who takes it and twists it a little bit more. And ultimately you end up with people worshipping false gods or outright atheists denying God of any of his glory. And that's the punishment that comes upon them. He doesn't let them get away with it. So we don't get punished for our father's sins. It's when we embrace the same thing. And that's stated very clearly when he says, for those who keep on hating me. And that's the sad thing. The only thing that will break the cycle, because then you're a slave and, and you don't know what it's like to have anything else. God has to break in with his grace, with the good news that a Savior has come, but he has to come with his law to show you you're a slave and that you need a Savior. And then he adds those other words in verse 6. Yet who keeps on doing committed love to thousands, specifically to those who keep on loving me and who keep on observing my commands. Now, it's through the gospel that we find out that we can't keep on loving God or keep on doing his commands. The law shows us that. The gospel says, therefore, God did it for you. The gospel, the good news of salvation, Christ says God put his Holy Spirit in your heart and is, and so that you receive the blood of Christ. So you can only keep on loving him and keep on observing his commands if you're saved. God has to do that for us. God has to free us from that slavery so that we are now free to think and praise him for the eternal life and the freedom he's given us. And he says, you must not lift up the name of the Lord your God for what is emptiness, because the Lord will not leave unpunished the one who lifts up his name for what is emptiness. God's name represents everything God does for you. And I say the name Jesus from Yahshua, Hebrew meaning Savior, God saves you. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, all these names God gives us. 
Now, one of the reasons God gave his name to the nation of Israel was to give them something to solemnly swear by. If you were making a covenant, if you were going to call to testify, you would swear by God's name. And we Christians can still use it that way. So we don't want to swear about silly, petty things. But think about it, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're called to court and you're asked to swear on the Bible, swear by God's name, you are saying, if I lie, I will forfeit my salvation. The other way is to look at God and everything he does and treat it with content. I don't care. I want to sleep in. I don't care about hearing God's word. This is unfair. And once again, we're so thankful that God, that name Jesus Christ, anointed one to be Savior, took on our human flesh to free us from that slavery of other gods, of turning to other gods, making ourselves God, and yes, even taking God for granted, lifting up his name for emptiness. So we see the law reveals your true slavery, slavery to false gods. And I could spend all day preaching about the thousand different pantheon of false gods each one of us could individually have. But let's move on. The third commandment. Remember the Sabbath day in order to set it apart as holy. You remember to set it apart as holy. And that's holiness in Hebrew actually means to set apart for God's purposes. So he says, six days you are to work and you are to do all your regular work. Yet the seventh is a Sabbath in respect to the Lord your God. So you must not do all your regular work, neither you nor your sons, nor your daughters, nor your male or female servants, nor your cattle, nor the foreigner who's residing within your gates, living in your city. See, in other words, you don't get somebody else to do the work. He wanted the entire nation of Israel to take this day and rest. And he explains exactly that. He says, because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. In this way, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God is all powerful. He doesn't need to take a snooze because he's exhausted. He rested on the seventh day and made a big deal about it because he created you and your body to need a break. And he wanted you to take at least one day a week and physically take a break. You emotionally need a break. So we've already covered physical if, if you're dealing where you work with a lot of interaction, a lot of people, especially in areas where you, or family members you end up doing a lot of counseling, you can often find yourself just emotionally needing to be left alone for a while. Spiritually, you need a break because the devil, he lies. He says, you do that sin. It's okay. You twist God's will and then you do it. And when you're a believer, he says, how could you? Oh, God ain't going to let you get away. You need a break from a troubled conscience. So God had set aside a day for the nation of Israel. That was Saturday. They were to do no work. Now, there was a spirit of the law here that was misunderstood by the Pharisees. If you were a doctor and you could save somebody's life and they were dying, God then in the spirit of law called you to do that work. If you were a priest, you had to work on the Sabbath, so you found a different day that would then be your day of rest. But for the nation as a whole, the general principle is you don't work, you don't find shortcuts, and they actually would go like to the temple, or if you lived in a, in a city away from Jerusalem, there would be priests who would come and proclaim the word of God to you. And you would find rest from the burdens of your sin, rest in the word. And it is nice to have both the physical and the spiritual rest Rest from the devil constantly attacking us by just wrapping ourselves in the shelter of the word of God. It's a mighty fortress to be told our sins are forgiven. So we see the law reveals your true slavery. Slavery to false gods and slavery that is forced labor. That really is what slavery is. The devil will not stop attacking you. He will not stop trying to get you to run back to your sin. And so God says, I want your body to rest. I want you to emotionally rest. And I want you to have a spiritual break from the devil, which is what you get when you're in the word, which is what you're getting right now. Then the rest of the commandments. 
Honor both your father and your mother so that your days may be lengthened upon the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. The very first commandment that deals with our relationship outside of God deals with our relationship with those who are to represent God to us. The father is to represent Christ. The mother is to represent the church. And anybody who's in authority is actually God's representative. Now, if they abuse that authority, that's, a, that's something else. But God's very first commandment deals with our relationship with other human beings, starts with those who are first and foremost in the family, his representatives. And he tells us to honor them, and he said to the Israelites, so that your day be long on the land. If mom and dad were good believers and they taught you, how, uh, taught you what God said, God promised to bless the land and protect you from enemies. Unfortunately, they didn't do this, so God would lift his hand. That's like the book of Judges. Whatever false god they were worshiping then, uh, that nation would usually come and oppress them until they repented of their ways. But God says to you, he's changed that for us New Testament believers in Christ because the nation of Israel, its purpose now that Christ has been born, it doesn't even need to exist. It was just to point to the coming of Christ. So God now tells you, and I will give you a long life. Christian mothers and fathers who raise their children up knowing the law, knowing the forgiveness that's been won for them, knowing the Lord, give their children eternal life. God allows them to be the instrument in proclaiming eternal life to them. So then from here on out, you get a lot of commands that are pretty common in civilization. We really see these built into our conscience. You must not murder, period. By the way, if a baby, a baby in the womb, if you kill it, it is defenseless. You are murdering that abortion. And that's one of the things why us Christians have a problem with that. Murder, though, is defined specifically. It's not where he's established the government to take life in order to protect life, such as when a foreign invader uh, comes into our land or somebody walks into a school and is shooting, then the cop shoots that person to God's glory. Murder is premeditated taking a person's life. Animal rights activists will tell you you should obey this commandment. The Hebrew word used for murder has nothing to do with taking animal life to eat them. It's set aside for, for, for killing a human being. All right, under those specific circumstances. Then he says you must, you must not commit adultery. Again, sex is a blessing from God. It's only to happen in the marriage bed to a man and his wife that are married. And in that case, God actually blesses it. Anything else from that, God says, I'm not going to bless it. Don't do that. That's perversion. You must not steal. God gives to you what you need and don't take from somebody what God has given to them. You must not testify a falsehood against your neighbor. We already talked about we can call on the name of the Lord our God to protect our neighbor's property when we appear in court and to give the right punishment to criminals, the civil punishments, to discourage that behavior. And he says you must not covet your neighbor's wife. And when I was a kid, when I went through catechism, I, I just thought this was a restatement. You can't commit adultery. No, the one focuses on what you do in the bedroom. The other one focuses on the services that are provided by your spouse. Maybe your spouse is good at removing snow or, or cooking, and, and your neighbor turns around and wants that. God says no. Then he continues on. Uh, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now, if your neighbor has a great four-wheel drive truck and you have the money, you want to buy it, and you offer to buy it from him, and he says, great, I agree on that price, that's no big deal. If he says no, then you can't sit there and covet it. You can have the money to go out and buy an identical truck from the car dealership. But when we start saying, God has kept that from me, and I want that specific thing, and yes, we can even use the law and manipulate ways to get our neighbor's property out from underneath them, God says, don't do that. So we, we learn here that Christ, he's freed us from the slavery. We don't need those things. And it gives us a servant's attitude that we'll be content with what God has provided us. So we see here, we also have a slavery that leads us to despise our neighbor, to lust our neighbor, and to, and to covet what our neighbor has that God hasn't blessed us with or given to us. 
So brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look at the Ten Commandments, it was given to the nation of Israel. Some of the things have changed because it was only for the nation of Israel. The general principles are there. And we thank the Lord that he's freed us from slavery. But if we didn't have that law, we wouldn't see the slavery of our sinful nature. So today we've seen that the law reveals your true slavery. Slavery to false gods, slavery that is forced labor, and slavery to despise, lust, covet your neighbor. And we thank the Lord that he's busted the chains of that slavery and his blood washes us free because we in one way or the other break one of these and, and literally by the minute just in our own thoughts. And so we're thankful that he's freed us from that and we are his children who have eternal life. Amen. Let us conclude our sermon with prayer. O oh God, you warn that you will punish all who break these commandments. May we fear your wrath and not disobey you. We thank you for promising grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments. Help us to love and trust you and to gladly do what you command through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.